Luke chapter 14. While you're turning there, I, um, we're going into week eight of week, uh, 13 weeks altogether in our Experiencing God series. And this past week, as we were working through our workbook, not only really what we talked about last Sunday, but what we talked about in the workbook this past week was this crisis of belief. And we looked at how this crisis of belief has to take place in order for us to obey God. And when that crisis of belief comes, that's the moment that we take everything that we believe to be true about God and about what he has said and about what he wants, and we put it into faith and we put it into action. So what we believe about God then translates into, uh, directly into our lives. I don't know about you, but as I worked through the workbook this past week, um, I saw ways in which many people, um, even people of little faith, saw God work in really big ways. And I hope that you were convicted as I was convicted about my often lack of faith. And as I worked through this past week, I realized, you know what? There's a lot of times in which I kind of put God in this nice, neat little box and say, okay, God, here's what you, I think that you can do. And so I'm going to shape my life around what that little box holds. But that's not how God works at all. In fact, he always, always works in a great, greater way than what we think that he can. Um, our memory verse for this past week was this. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and I want to invite you to read it out loud or quote it out loud um, with me. It is, and without faith, come on out loud, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. That was our memory verse for this past week. You'll find our memory verse for this next week on your handout, which, by the way, pull out that handout because we'll fill in those blanks, those notes here in just a few moments. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, it, doesn't say that it doesn't say that it's hard to please God or that you might could please God without faith. It is clear there that it's impossible to please God. Now, the cool thing is that God uses little experiences in our lives to increase our faith. And I'll say that again. God uses little experiences in our lives to increase or make bigger our faith. And I want to give you a few examples here of just how God has worked in my life over the years to increase my faith. The first story I'll tell you is that years ago when I was in college, I got down to the last little bit of the semester. Final exams were coming up, and um, I had that visit to the business office that every college student hates, where they tell you, hey, you still owe such and such amount of money, and you can't take your final exams until you pay this amount of money. Well, there's a big problem. Anyone, anybody want to guess the problem? I had no money. And when I say no money, I might have had a few dollars in my checking account, but that was, that was it. So all the way from the business office, I'm praying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. And final exams are in just a couple of days. So Lord, I need help with this. And I kid you not, I went directly from the business office to the mail room and I opened up my mailbox and took out an envelope. And inside that envelope is down to the penny, the amount of money that I owed the school. To the penny. Now you talk about a faith booster. That's like a straight shot of faith in the arm, okay? That was incredible just to see the way God worked in, in providing that, that money. It was a big faith booster, is what I'll call it. Are you fast forward a few years, 2009, Hillary and I have been dating for a couple of years, and, um, and somehow I get up the nerve to ask her to marry me. And because I'm such a stud and because I'm such a great catch, she says yes. Actually, there's a lot of begging that took place there, but I won't go into that. I'm, I'm kidding. There wasn't actual begging. It was a very 
Jointed, yes. Right, Hillary? Yes? Absolutely. <laughs> the next year is 2010, and she graduates from college. And because I'm on the six-year program for undergraduate, I still have a, couple, a year left of school. We get married 2010, just a few weeks after she graduates from, from college. We go on the honeymoon, and we pay for that honeymoon from funds that we received as wedding presents. That's the only way we paid for that, for that honeymoon. We get back to our apartment in Lynchburg, and all of a sudden, it's like that reality hits of, wait a minute, we're married, and we got to make a living now. She has a job that doesn't really pay all that much, and I don't have any job whatsoever. And so we pray. Lord, would you provide the funds, the, the jobs that we need in order to make it? Well, just a couple of days later, I get a job painting, and I hate painting. I mean, I absolutely hate painting. But God provided, and then not long after that, he provided ministry jobs um, for me on, on Liberty's campus and Hillary, another job where she was hugely influential in the way the Lord used her. So that was another way in which we just saw a simple Little experience where God provides that boosts our faith big time. I think about also um, a little bit later, 2016, um, Hillary and I had been here at Salem for almost two years, and the pulpit committee and I are talking about the possibility of me coming on as, as the senior pastor and being called by this church to be the pastor. And y'all, I'll be honest with you, I am scared to death. Um, it's a big job. It's a big calling. And, and, you know, there's the fear of man that's a part of, of, this, of this fear. But more than anything, it's the fear that I'm going to have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account for this church and for how I, as the under-shepherd, stewarded this church. And I'll never forget the prayer that Hillary and I prayed in that time period. It was, it was very simply, Lord, your, your word very clearly says, if any man desires the office of overseer, and then it lists out the qualifications for a pastor. And I prayed, Lord, I believe that the qualifications are there. And I believe that you have affirmed that through other godly people. But Lord, I don't know that I want to pastor Salem Baptist Church. So if this is of you, you've got to put the desire in my heart. And over the next couple of months, as Hillary and I prayed diligently, and there were other people praying with us, he didn't just give us a desire he gave us a burning passion to see souls saved through the ministry of Salem Baptist Church and through our ministry here at Salem Baptist Church. It wasn't just desire, it was passion. And once again, that little experience with God built our faith big time. One more story. It wasn't too long ago that there was a man here in our church that came to me and he said, he said, Pastor Kivett, um, my marriage is over. I have, I have done some things that absolutely ruined my marriage. And he said, I don't think there's any hope whatsoever to save my marriage. And we prayed. And one of the things I remember praying in that time as he and I were praying is, Lord, give us the faith to see this marriage restored. Give us the faith to see this marriage restored. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy. But over the next several months, the Lord did restore that marriage. And now that couple is ministering in another church elsewhere. It was incredible the way that God worked. But it's these little experiences that increase our faith, that build our faith. Here's a statement that I came across this past week that I've been chewing on, and I'll put it on the screen so you can read it with me. We can see the moving of God in history, but it's sometimes hard for us to see him moving in our lives now. Anybody else concur with that? 
Like you can see God and the way that he moved in the past. And you can see the way that he worked in the Apostle Paul. You think about a George Mueller who absolutely trusted God in all things. In fact, he started all these orphanages everywhere. And every single day he was just simply praying, God, here's the need. He didn't tell anybody about the need, but God provided over and over and over again. You think about the Apostle Paul and the great faith that he had. You think about the Hebrews chapter 11 and that hall of faith that we, that we see as we read through Hebrews chapter 11. And what you find over and over and over again is instances of great faith where God worked in great ways. We look back at our own lives and we think about how God worked that day or, or that time period or here's what God did then. But we look at our lives now oftentimes and we think, God, I don't really see you working. I don't really see you, you doing much in my life right now. And that's a sad place to be because I believe that our God is always a God who's moving us and shaping us and moving us forward. We can look at the great faith of a lot of people, and in those people we see the faithfulness of God, we see the way that God used those people, but we struggle oftentimes to see him working in our lives right now. And here's a question to go along with this. Could it be that we don't see God at work in us because we have a wrong view of Christianity as a whole? Because that's kind of where I've landed this past week, and as I've looked at where we've been in experiencing God and where we're going this next week, and as I prayed about what to share with you today, I really felt like we needed to tie together this idea of faith with deepening our walk with Christ that we're going to talk about this, this next week. But could it be that our current view of Christianity doesn't line up with Jesus' view of Christianity? And could that be the reason for us not seeing God work in our lives right now? Luke chapter 14 is where we're at. We're going to read verses 25 through 33, okay? So I'm going to invite you in your Bible. I'm going to read, and you read along with me as I read. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, talking about Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first to, and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You go to this time when Jesus is, is, is saying this, there's a lot of people who are following Jesus and they're following him because he's doing these miracles, he's doing really cool things. Um, He's, they're following him because he's a great teacher, and they affirm that he is that great teacher, and they want to continue to see Jesus do these, these miraculous things. But Jesus knows the state of their heart, and so he turns around and then he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what I want to do in these next few moments is just take a look at what Jesus says it takes to be his disciple. What is Jesus' requirement for Christianity? Number one, a, a disciple must love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. 
A disciple must love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. Now, in verse 26 there, we see this word hate, and, uh, and it doesn't really mean what we maybe think it, it means. Uh, it doesn't mean that in order to be a Christian, we got to turn to a life of hatred for our families. Um, in fact, another time in Scripture, you see Jesus talk about how important it is to love the Lord our God and, at the same time, love those people around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not like Jesus is saying you have to turn to a life of hatred. He's saying, no, it's very important for you to love God and love other people. But first and foremost, it is important for you to love God more than anything else. And what Jesus means as he's saying this is that in comparison to how much we love Jesus, it's as if we hate other people. Not that we do hate other people, because that's not consistent with the Bible at all. No, we love Jesus so much that he is preeminent. He is number one. He's the one that comes first every single time. We love him more than anyone or anything else. Now, boy, that's convicting to me. Because I love a lot of people. And I love a lot of things. And if I really take a good, honest look at myself, oftentimes I really believe that I love those things in this life more than I love Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you've got to forsake those other things in comparison to the way that you accept and love me. Jesus draws that line in the sand and he says, you cannot be my disciple until you decide who or what is most important. And ultimately, until you decide to love me more than anything else. And that first point right there really, really cuts, doesn't it? Here's the second point. The second requirement for being a disciple, a disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. Must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he goes into this illustration of, of the tower. For which of you desire, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. When Jesus makes this statement about the cross, it would have been really shocking for the people who were listening to him. Now, for us as Christians today, we look at an empty cross, and I just, I just turn around and I look at this one up here. We look at an empty cross as a sign of victory. Sin and death is defeated on that cross. But if you're in this culture in, when, in which Jesus is speaking to these people and they're under this Roman authority, they look at the cross as the sign of defeat. This is the person who hangs on the cross who is a criminal, who deserves death. It's a brutal, cruel punishment. But what Jesus is saying here is that we are to take up that cross and follow him. That means that we die to ourselves. Anybody who heard Jesus talking about a cross here is thinking about this. It's this idea of death. And Jesus is saying that when we take up the cross, we are dying to ourselves. Who we are, what we want, all dies. Every bit of it goes away. Jesus then goes on to talk about weighing the cost. There's the illustration about the man building a tower, about the king who, who went to war, about how they weigh the cost before they make the decision. 
And in that same way, we're to weigh the cost of following Jesus because our decision to follow him is a really serious thing. You may have noticed over the past couple of years, before we baptize someone here at our church, there's two questions that we ask that person. Number one, do you believe that Jesus has done absolutely everything necessary to secure your salvation? In other words, it's not up to you. It's not because of what you have done. Do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary by which to secure your salvation? And then number two, are you willing to forsake everything that this life has to offer for sake of following Jesus? Are you willing to forsake everything? And Jesus says that we are to weigh the cost of following him before we make that decision to actually follow him. I hope that before you became a Christian, that you weighed that cost and you said, yes, Jesus is absolutely worth the cost. And listen, there is no cost whatsoever for us to to enter into salvation, to be saved. In fact, Jesus has done everything for that. All that's required for us is simple faith. But when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's a strong chance that Jesus is going to ask something of you and that there's going to be some kind of cost. And it might just be that Jesus doesn't just ask of a little bit of you. He may ask for everything that you have to offer, including your life. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 14, what he's saying is that, you know what? You've got to think about this before you make the decision. And what they didn't know in this moment is that for every single one of those disciples, except for one, they would give their very life for Jesus. Christian, let me ask you something. Are you willing to give your very life for Jesus? And if you're not a Christian today, you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ yet, I hope that you're weighing the cost and that when your yes is yes, it really is yes. Yes, I will follow Jesus no matter what. Jesus says, weigh the cost, and once you're willing to die to yourself, then here's the next requirement. Number three, a disciple must turn the the title deed of his life over to Jesus. A disciple must turn the title deed of his life over to Jesus. Verse Verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's pretty straightforward language. We cannot be Jesus' disciple until we renounce everything in order to follow him. Jesus is not saying there that it's bad to own a house or to own a car or to have nice things. But what he's saying is that we should surrender our claim to those earthly possessions. Uh, Psalm 24.1 is a verse I think about here where it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, wheat and, and the, the world and those who dwell therein. All of it. All of it is the Lord's. We belong to God. And as disciples of Jesus, we, we turn the title of our, of our lives over to Jesus. Greg Laurie, in preaching a, a sermon on this passage, he says, It's not wrong to have a career, but it's wrong if a career has you. It's not wrong to have possessions, but it's wrong if your possessions have you. He continues, your one true obsession in life should be Christ and him crucified. Everything else has its place, but that's what our lives should be about. Christ and him crucified. Then here's the fourth and final requirement of Jesus' disciples. That is that a disciple must impact their culture. I didn't read this before, but verse 34 is, is where Jesus then just goes right into this verse. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
Now, salt is vital to this culture, and it's vital for a couple of reasons. Um, but, but really, when it comes right down to it, and you may remember us talking about this as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, salt has got to be pure in form. If it's diluted with anything, sand, anything else, then it loses its effectiveness. Salt has got to come in a pure form. Salt makes a big impact on preservation, on taste, all of that. But something else that I, that I thought about this week as I'm looking at this is, is this. Salt creates thirst. Salt creates thirst. One of my favorite restaurants is the Classic down in Denton. How many of you have ever eaten at the Classic in Denton? Okay, you know what? Maybe we need to have a church party one day where we just take the whole church after church and go eat at the Classic. It's huge, so it wouldn't quite... Yeah, I see a big old, big old fist bump over here. Y'all, the Classic is awesome. It is a massive buffet of heaven. We'll just say it that way. And when you pile high the food on the plate, it's like a heart attack waiting to happen. It's amazing. You got everything from just about every kind of vegetable that you can think of to, you can buy fat back, not buy, but you can, yeah, you buy, but it's all you can eat. So you can eat all the fat back that you would ever want to eat off this buffet. All the meat that you could ever think of. One of my favorite things about the classic is the ham. Baked ham and country ham. But when you eat this ham, you're going to be thirsty for several hours afterwards because it creates in you this thirst, and you've, you've got to have water. You've got to have sweet tea. You've got to have something to quench the thirst. And that's the same idea that, that we think about here with, with this idea of, of the salt creating thirst. A Christian should be creating a thirst for Jesus and the people around them. So as other people, both Christians and non-Christians alike, as, as other people spend time with you, the goal is that you're, build, you're building in them a desire to grow closer to Jesus. You're, you're producing in them a thirst for Jesus. They spend time with you and automatically they want to they draw close to Jesus. There's an actor that lived years ago by the name of Steve McQueen that's, that's a really good illustration for this. And Steve McQueen was like a modern day Solomon. This guy had it all. He had all the money, all the fame, all the women, everything that he ever wanted, he had it. In fact, he, he built an entire airplane hangar just to hold his toys. He was absolutely filthy rich, but he realized that none of that was bringing him happiness. And so he walked away from his acting career. At the time, he didn't even fully know why he was walking away from his acting career, but he moved to a little town called Santa Paula, California. And when he moved there, um, he, he wanted to learn to fly this special little German biplane. The problem was there's only one person who is an instructor for, this, for, for, for training you to fly this plane. It's a man by the name of Sammy Mason. Sammy Mason was the only instructor, and so Steve McQueen went to him and said, hey, would you teach me how to fly this plane? Well, well Sammy, he doesn't care anything about who this guy is. His fame doesn't bother him. In fact, he, he turns him down multiple times. No, don't have time. No. Well, finally, Sammy agrees to teach Steve McQueen how to fly this plane. And as they're flying, Steve realizes there's something about this guy that's different. There's a peace that comes from this man that I want. And Sammy just invites Steve McQueen to church. And Steve McQueen goes and he, he experiences Jesus. He figures out how he can have life in Jesus as a result of going to this church with, with Sammy. And he comes to know Jesus as his personal Savior. 
Steve McQueen's life is absolutely forever changed. And it changed because of one disciple of Jesus Christ who stimulated a thirst for Jesus in somebody else. Y'all, this is how it's supposed to work. Christians create thirst for Jesus everywhere they go. And, and, and if you're not creating a thirst for Jesus in other people, then something is wrong. Now, earlier I made the statement. I said, we can see the moving of God in history. But it's sometimes hard for us to see him moving in our lives right now. Could it be? Could it be? that we don't see God moving because some of us have forgotten what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. We've forgotten that it means, according to Jesus, it means that we love Jesus more than anything or anyone else. That we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. That we turn the title deed to our lives over to Jesus and that we impact the culture for Jesus. This week in our workbooks, we're going to take this deep dive into what it looks like for us to adjust our lives to God, to make sure that we're not trying to put him inside that little box, but that we're actively adjusting our lives to him. And I hope that this reminder that you've had today from Luke chapter 14 of what a disciple is has challenged you this morning. And if you want to know more about what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, come talk to me because I'd love to show you. In fact, That's my favorite thing in this entire world to do, is show people how they can be a disciple of Jesus. Father, would you help us know what it means, know what it looks like to be your, to be a disciple of Jesus. Lord, to turn over our lives to him and to say, not my will, but your will be done. Father, we believe that you still have the ability to do great things in the redemption of this world, that you want to, to show us just how great and powerful you are. And Father, we believe that you can do that not only in our individual lives, but in our church as well. But Father, I pray that we will daily make that decision to be a sold out disciple of Jesus Christ so that you have the freedom to do great things in and through and around us. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.